Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. The supreme understanding transcends all this and that. The supreme action embraces great resourcefulness without attachment. The supreme accomplishment is to realize eminence without hope. Hmm? Now, when we are born into this world, <clears throat> we're born free. We're free. Hmm? But we don't know it. Too bad, huh? <laughs> the beginning of our life in this world is quite, quite natural. It's spontaneous. We cry when we're hungry, and we cry when we're wet, and we gurgle when we're all right. And here we are, you know, maybe two, three months old, and answering koan all over the place without knowing it, like the sound of one hand. Huh? But as we grow and we become accustomed to this body and our environment, uh, as we begin to enter society, you know, and we learn the rules and the regulations, and our morality, and uh, all kinds of training and discipline, the naturalness gradually is, shall we say, uh, subdued or submerged. It's no longer on the forefront. And as it submerges, you know, uh, one gathers around oneself a kind of an armor and one becomes rigid, as it were. The, the, under, the inner, unconditioned freedom goes underground and is no longer apparent. And we move, as it were, we can call it moving, no, yes, it's an outward moving huh, toward objectivity, outward moving, from this state of naturalness of unconditioned into conditioned, the, this freedom of the inner, you know, without any awareness of what is about. Hmm? We move from this inner naturalness to the boundaries that we set up for ourselves. And after having set up these boundaries for ourselves, you know, our limitations, many people think that this boundary has to be defended, you know. And so we begin to act for security and for safety. And then we look to others for approval of how we're doing this thing, and, uh, or they reject us, or, you know, or we look for their appreciation so that others become the criterion. And we live by what they like and by what they say, and we imitate them. By and large, in, in a country or a culture, people conform to the rules that are laid out by the society. And then, on the other hand, there are those that rebel. You know. So we're either for or against. 
maybe sometimes a little bit against, and sometimes only a little bit for, but you know, it's, it's all in there. We make choices. Now, have you ever watched yourself make a choice? Just a little thing, just little things. Have you ever watched yourself, what goes on all inside here, when you make a choice? Well, you know, um, in our neighborhood, uh, there are some children, and the little boy next door came by, and he was selling something, and so I bought a little jewelry thing from him. It was not expensive. And uh, they sell candy and all kinds of things, huh? They, they sell things. So the other day, a little boy came by, and now I've known this little boy since he was about four. At four, he used to come by and knock on the door and ask if Jack was going to work in the yard because he wanted to help him pull weeds. And this little four-year-old could pull weeds faster than anybody else I've ever seen, and thorough and neat, everything. I mean, he just in there pitching, you know. Well, now he's somewhere between 10 and 12. He no longer comes to the door and asks to weed. He used to come and do that so that he knew he got a piece of candy when he was finished. 10 and 12, mm, different. <laughs> but he was selling something now, and he had sold something to one of the neighbors. And the neighbor wasn't home, so, and he knowing me, would I accept it for the neighbor? You know, I watched what went on inside of me, how I felt about the neighbor, uh, how I felt about what he was selling, how I felt about him. Should I accept it? Should I not accept it? Uh, the whole neighborhood, all of this claptrap went by. Just, you know, you could see it all. And of course, what I chose was very interesting but I also knew why I chose what I did. Hmm? And I, really, I will say you have to be pretty quick to catch it all. So once in a while, watch yourself when you choose something. I mean, when you value something, why do you value it? Why do you choose to give this value? Because it's a choice that you have, huh? Why do you choose what you choose? Hmm? Hmm. Now, this society that moves into consciousness and begins to discipline and regulate the child is not all wrong. You know, if a child is left entirely to himself, he grows kind of topsy-turvy, you know, upside-down-like or something. Uh, Children, you know, at the beginning, they don't know right from wrong, by and large. Some of them do automatically, and some of them don't. And they have to be taught. Some children are just automatically, they're, they're born with this thing of being considerate and being kind. And some of them are not. They have to learn it, at least outwardly, that this is the show that has to be put on. You know. And then, of course, some never learn. And in society, there are different kinds of religious training. And we do realize that some is better than none. Even though you may have to unlearn it, but there are so many things you have to unlearn anyway, so... But it instills something in the heart. So that we, these rules and regulations that we have to deal with are necessary. They are kind of a mean, you know, a kind of a level to follow. We may go like this over the mean, but still, there it is, you know, laid out. However, we should also learn that society is not our permanent house. If we build a house just on rules and regulations of society, we have got a house built on sand, as it were, huh? 
what is, now one needs to learn the rules. One needs to learn that we are not alone, that society is a group, it is a community, and there are others to be considered, not only family, that's the first group, of course, that we learn, but then uh, the outlying family, the community. Huh? Now, within ourselves, though, that's where we build the house that stands on rock. You know. We must, within ourselves, transcend being either for or against the rules and the regulations. In other words, within, in this, as close as we can get again to this unconditioned state, you know, we become choiceless because it is, unconditioned is choiceless. So a child should be taught that we have this environment on the surface. Our environment is our surface. But within ourselves, there is a, shall we say, there is a space. There's a little space huh? in which we do not become attached to the cultural pattern so that that little space remains free. Rules are to be followed, but the rules are not life. The participants of a group, you know, the community, and our civilization, and so forth, they're supposed to work for one another. But the individual within the group is to transcend the group. Mm -hmm. The structure. Now, if we could all live in that kind of an environment, where everybody knows that everybody's working for the good of everybody, and at the same time they're working for the good of themselves, there would be no need for any rebellion. Working together and the striving for freedom within oneself. And that's how we should live. Hmm. Hmm. You know, uh, isn't that in a way what this Rebellion was all about yeah. freedom from structure. They called it freedom from the establishment, of course. And here they were, you know, fighting and all over the place. And they didn't, they weren't free. They just changed one set of rules for another set of rules. Now, in growing up, we learn all sorts of things for society. We learn how to enter a room properly, some of us. Uh, <laughs> I mean, little things, you know. You can come banging into a room and sit down in a chair and go, <gasps> and of course everybody hears it, and you've disturbed everybody. Or uh, you can walk into a room and sit down and take your place and doesn't matter whether you're there or not. You entered properly. We learn how to eat, how to uh, use this fork for this, for a salad, and another fork for the main course, and another fork for dessert. And you put the napkin in your lap, but not on the top of your head. But you can tuck it in here if you must. Huh? Elbows off the table. See? There are table manners, and there are table manners. Hmm? All through the century, we have had table manners. And all through the centuries, they have changed. Hmm? In England, a few centuries ago, you know, we ate with the fingers. Yeah. We didn't have any salads. We didn't have any vegetables. Uh, what did they have? They had porridge, and they made something to go along with the meat. And we've seen pictures, you know, like King Henry VIII, eating and then flinging the bones, either the dogs that were sitting there waiting or into the hearth, you know, so the fire could burn them. See? And then uh, on our trip to Japan, we noticed the table manners of the Zen monks, which manners they were trained into, and they have lasted over centuries. 
you know. So uh, some of you do some of this in the summertime session. The gong is struck, and the monks enter the room in a procession, and they're carrying their own bowls, and they sit at a low table, and then a bell is rung, and the bowls are all set in their proper arrangement on the table. And there are those monks that go around to serve the soup and the rice and the pickles. <laughs> Terrible stuff. See. And all the while, the, the group is all, they're all chanting the Hanya Paramita, the Hanya Haramita thing, huh? And then this is followed by the five meditations of on eating. Uh, which are, uh, the first one is, of what worth am I? Hmm? From whence is this offering? And that's a pretty big question. From whence is this offering? What part of you is offering a parcel of food? Hmm? Who offers? Who offers? Whence is this offering? Yeah. Now, then uh, number two, the second meditation on eating, is uh, accepting this food, I must reflect on my deficiency. Hmm? In accepting this food, I must look at myself. Hmm? Am I as compassionate as I know how to be? Am I as kind as I know how to be? Am I as generous as I know how to be? To whom should I be kind? And what kind of kindness? There are many kindnesses. Huh? Why do I discriminate between this one and that one in my kindness? Hmm? Why do I make these choices? And three, you know, is to guard the heart. So that is to keep myself away from greed and selfishness and hatred. And four is the um, fourth meditation. This food is taken as good medicine in order to keep this body in a healthy condition. And we look at the food we're eating, we accept it in this, that it's going to keep this body in a healthy condition. Yeah. And then the fifth one, of course, is to ensure the spiritual attainment. In that manner, this food is accepted. These are the five meditations on food for the Zen monk. Yeah. Always, you know, they're always in this training. They don't sit down and chatter. They're doing these meditation things. And then they recite the various names of the Buddha, indicating the different states. So we have the Buddha that is the body of the law. And we have the Buddha that is the body of bliss, which is, is the Sambhogya Kaya. And we have the Buddha of the Buddha, the Buddha, which is the body of transformation, which is the body called Nirmanakaya. And these three make up the body, of, actually, of the Buddha, the Buddha nature. And then uh, we, there is the Buddha of the future time, which is the Lord Maitreya. Um, the Lord Maitreya, this is a very interesting thing. Um, And then we have uh, all the Buddhas of the past, present, and the future. 
and the Bodhisattva Manjusri, and uh, the morally perfect Bodhisattva, and the compassionate Bodhisattva, and all the Bodhisattvas, and then, of course, again, we come back to the Mahapranyaparamita. All this now, they, they take into consideration. Then the monk takes seven grains of rice from his bowl, and he offers it. He puts it up there. He offers it. And he says at this time, I offer to you, may this food fill the ten quarters of the world, and all spiritual beings be fed with it. And then they begin to eat. The first mouthful is to cut off all evil. The second mouthful is to practice every good. And the third mouthful is to save all sentient beings. See, these are the vows. With the eating. And of course, they have to eat everything that they have accepted as far as food is concerned. And when they're finished, why they uh, rinse out the bowls with, with their leftover tea. And then they wrap up their bowls and, and then they say, I have now finished eating and my physical body is well nourished. And for the general welfare of all beings, may we all unfailingly gain in powers miraculous. And then the wooden box clapped together, you know, and the monks leave the room again in a very orderly procession. Discipline, discipline, discipline. And I don't think it hurt him any. Not the ones I met. Yeah. See, because it all the time it is a it is this thing of learning the learning process of learning to direct the mind to something other than me and myself and what I want. We learn a kind of a non-attachment to ourselves. You know how attached you are to yourself? We do not have what Meister Eckhart called Gelassenheit. You know, the, the leave it be. It's a, which is a kind of a a uh, releasing, a releasement, or a, a detachment, or a non-attachment, Gelassenheit. We are not free from the known. Hmm? And we're not free from the unknown. Freedom from attachment, from the known. Most of the time, maybe you can even remember one time when you did not feel more real than anything in your environment. You are more real than anything in your environment, and that's not possible. We are always the center of our attention. Hmm? Actually, if we're honest, we rarely attend to anything else except myself. <laughs> hmm? This armored self. This habitual self. This self of habits. How, if everything is so habitual with us, which it is, you know, this habit, these habits that we have, we don't even stop to think we have got a choice. We get up in the morning, and if you're like me, you just, here comes the breakfast. You know, the hot water goes on, and, and the coffee goes on, and the cereal in a bowl, and a banana on the cereal, and then I sit down and drink some hot water with some lemon in it. I don't vary. It's habit that I started a long time ago. I think it's it's a healthy habit. But uh, after I'm all through breakfast, once in a while I think, gee, I could have had eggs this morning, couldn't I? <laughs> See, I don't even allow myself a choice. You know? 
habits. Yeah. And the phone rings, you know, no matter what we're doing, boy, we're pell-mell after that telephone, even though we know it's going to be, it's dinner time, and we know it's going to be somebody trying to sell us something, because that's the only time they call. You could let it ring, couldn't we? We don't, boy. That's like a command. <laughs> Biggest command there is. Come and answer the telephone. It's ringing. Now, if we could have some of this Gelassenheit, this non-attachment, which is also which St. Paul called faith as substance. You know, this faith dissolves some of this armor of habit and allows then the experience of the empty self, the no-self, huh? and allows the experience of who we are. Now, this empty self, even though it is called empty, because it is empty of ego, hmm? empty self is a tremendous presence. It is actually an overwhelming presence. It is a reality, as much as I regard myself, I, as a reality. It is a much more of a reality than any I I have ever thought. Because most of the time when we say I, it's, we're thinking. There is in this self not the center of attention, I. It is the totality, and then you have no choice. It is total. Hmm? Then finally in there, I think we begin to understand what Vivekananda meant when he said, thine only is the hand that holds the rope that drags thee on. Let go thy hold, sannyasin bold. Say Om Tatsat, Om, hmm? thou art that. Now, um, going back to the monks over there, we do know that their industry is proverbial, legendary. They keep the monastery inside and outside in perfect order. Uh, they are self, the monks are a self-governing body. It, one thinks of the Roshi sort of as the soul of it, but he's not directly concerned with the government of the monks. These are appointed posts, and they change every six months, you know, so that they develop their faculties all around. They learn how to be in charge of certain things. And so they come out very well-rounded. Their education is from this these abstract instructions, we call them koan. Yeah. And of course, they do read some books, because I know that uh, Chunsan, uh, when we were there one time, he came up and he had this huge book. You know, and uh, Tani Roshi had just given him a new koan. So, and they, all he, Tani Roshi, all he does is tell them the number. You have to go look it up. Hmm? Yeah. Anyway, their, their discipline and what they learn is very practical and they are extremely efficient and we do admire that. You know. Learning by doing is their basic principle. They have outer needs and inner aspirations inspirations to, huh? Now, if, if they work with themselves harmoniously, which is, we must do, the final product that they make of themselves is in great demand in Japan. Huh? They have this very excellent character. 
they're strong and uh, they're very compassionate, very kind individuals. This that we call a Zen monk. Hmm? Good example. They have this inner awakening and they have an outer deportment that comes from the inner, not that somebody else says, you have to walk on that side of the street, you know. We act out, by and large, what we are within. So that if you watch how you act in certain situations, you will know what choices you are making, and you will see pretty much what you're about, what you are. And somebody once said, let the ideal, the ideal, rise as high as the crown of the highest divinity. Let your ideal be so high, while your life is so full of humility as to make you prostrate before an infant's feet. Which is about what Lao Tzu said too, you know. If any man desires to be first, he shall be last. Hmm? And the servant of all. And this is, of course, what Jesus was portraying when he washed the feet of his disciples. Aspire to the highest, but act in humility. Always put yourself second, in other words. That's what Lao Tzu said. Now, in this uh, making choices for ourselves as to how we're going to grow and what we're going to do, and we do this even today, you know, not only just little David, but all the rest of us are still doing it. We're still making these choices. And then in the course of events, we listen to others and what they have to say about it. Of course, the thing is, we listen to them only briefly. <laughs> Mostly, we listen to ourselves. Yeah. So we don't really listen, this listening to ourselves. We look around and we find these statements in our head, and then we can do as we please, because we're you know, we listened and... <laughs> By the time we're 35, we certainly know some things about the world and about ourselves. And we should, at that time, begin to be able to make some pretty good choices. So, such as, um, <clears throat> we're interested in finding out this naturalness and spontaneity. Uh, we're interested, let us say, in finding out who we are. So then we can ask, uh, should I spend some time in cultivating the inner self? Hmm? Should I spend some time doing that? Okay, I may do that, but now how much time? <laughs> half an hour? Half an hour a day? Well, really, that's not very much, huh? but half an hour a day. You know that all of your future, all of your future, the way you will behave in all of that future, the character that you create, your poise, your attachments, say, a year and a half from now, what you do and what you say, your reactions, your judgments, and your values, all of this is involved in a puny 30 minutes a day. And you know what? Well, I don't really have the time. This is so time-consuming. I hear it all the time. Huh? We think of wasting 30 minutes, and it's your future. No. 
You know, the future eventually is going to run dry. Then what? And then you think, oh my God, what I missed. Yeah. Now, this return to this natural state in us, I mean, it is there now. It's just a matter of finding it. One can do this only within oneself. Only oneself. Only when one is quite alone in oneself. Have you ever thought that maybe when the future does run dry and you're going to leave this world, you will be in a state of being alone? Why not learn how to deal with it now? There may not be any society afterwards to look to for approval. The only thing you're going to be stuck with is the choices you've made. If, say, you worked for or toward this Golosenheit within non-attachment. And we've all had moments, maybe a few, but usually people past 35 have had a time, a space in their lives, which were like an oasis in a desert, you know, where you, you looked at something and all of a sudden it was alive in a very different way. And some people, you know, sit down wanting to recapture this. They close their eyes and they simply just go beyond society. They transcend society. They move into themselves and they penetrate through to themselves. These few moments to seek for ourselves. You know, and it, it, you know, it's rather pleasant to have a few moments of alone out of society, because when you come back and look at society, of course, it's all still sitting there in you, but you can look at it maybe a little differently. You can choose better. What should we do? And maybe we could carry this whole thing a little further in this aloneness and even find ourselves in meditation. Hmm. Simple. Hmm. Yeah. Close your eyes and forget society. Yeah. Forget your boundaries. Forget your rules. Forget your regulations. And then you're quite alone. Hmm? And you slip into this other area of no world, no words, no language, no society. It's where everything is perfectly natural, just as natural as the Garden of Eden, which certainly is there in you. Now, there was a time, I'm going to tell you a couple stories about making choices, when Tonka, the monk Tonka, I think he's also known as Bankai, he stopped at a temple, the name was Erenji, and it was terribly, terribly cold. Now, the cold in Japan is terrible. It was severe, cold. So um, this man took one of the Buddha images enshrined there and made for himself a fire. Yeah. And the keeper of the shrine, he came in and he was incensed, just beside himself in anger. And, and he yelled at him, how dare you burn our wooden Buddha. And so Tonka didn't answer him at all. He just began to 
he took a stick and he began to poke around in the ashes. And so the, this keeper of the shrine asked him, you know, what he was doing. He says, well, I'm gathering the holy sarira in these ashes. Now, a sarira is a, um, <clears throat> it's a legendary thing. It's uh, supposed to be an indestructible substance that when they cremate a saint or a roshi, you know, why, uh, there is a little piece of bone, a little round thing that looks like a pebble that is left over. And they call this a sarira. And over in Tibet and all those places, they really look for them. You know. And the shrine keeper says to Tanka, how do you expect to find a sarira by burning a wooden monk of a wooden Buddha? Huh. Well, he says, if there are not any sariras to be found, uh, may I have the remaining two Buddhas for my fire? <laughs> and as this legend goes, why this shrine keeper uh, later, they, they say, lost his eyebrows, which is the saying, he lost his eyebrows for remonstrating against the apparent impiety of Tanka, while the Buddha's wrath never ever dropped on Tanka. Yeah, so. Now, um, as we all know, the monks in the monastery, they work, and they work very hard. Everybody works. They weed, and they sift through the gravel, and they plant trees, and they plant bushes, and they trim them and they sweep and uh, they pick at the garden. You know, whatever needs doing, they do. They polish the uh, verandas and the porches every day. Every day at work. Yeah. Now one day when Joshu was sweeping in the courtyard, a monk came by and he asked him, how does a speck of dust come into this holy ground? A monastery is a holy place, and there should be no dust. And Joshua answered him, here comes another. <laughs> Which is to say, we raise the dust and then complain that we can't see. One day, one fine day, an old man and a young man were traveling with their donkey. And they came on the outskirts of a town. And they were each walking along with the donkey. And a group of school children passed them, and the kids giggled, as kids will do. And they said to one another, look at those old fools, huh? They have a healthy donkey and they walk. At least the old man could sit on the donkey. And these two men looked at each other, what to do? People were laughing, and they're going to enter the town proper. Better to follow what the children said. So the old man got up and sat on the donkey, and they continued on to the town. And the young man was following. And pretty soon they passed another group of people who looked at them and said, well, this is really absurd. So they changed places. The old man walked, and the boy was allowed to ride. And then another group passed by, and they said, look at those fools. The boy seems to be very arrogant. Maybe the old man is his father. Maybe it's his teacher. But this is against all rules. The boy shouldn't be riding. The father should be riding. So they both sat on the donkey. <laughs> See? And then they passed another group. And these people said, look at how violent these people are. The poor donkey's almost dying. Hmm? The per two persons on one donkey. 
It would be better if they carried the donkey on their shoulders. And by now they had come to, do you recognize yourself? By now they had come to a river, which was the boundary of the town. And they stopped here and they talked. You know, these people think we're fools. We've done it all different ways. And we're going to be in the town proper now. And we mustn't be looked at as fools. So we'd better behave as the people in this town think we should behave. So they found a long, hollow bamboo pole, and they tied the donkey's feet to the pole, and they hoisted the pole to their shoulders, and thus they carried the donkey. Now this donkey, as donkeys do, rebelled. You cannot force a donkey easily. In fact, it's a little difficult at times to even make them listen to reason. <laughs> the donkey was not a believer in society. Nor was he interested in what others were saying. He just struggled to get out. That was natural. But another group of people came by and they clucked their teeth saying, how awful. A donkey is to ride upon, not to carry on your shoulders. These people are out of their minds. And all this while, this poor donkey is struggling and struggling and somehow got enough force to push enough so that he fell from the bridge into the river. And of course, the old man and the young boy ran down quickly to rescue him to no avail. And so they sat there. And they just sat there and looked at the river and felt bad. Finally, the old man said, look, just like this donkey, you will be dead if you listen to people too much. Hmm? There are millions of people, <coughs> millions of people, and they all have their own minds. They all have their own opinions. And if you listen to all these opinions, it will be your end. Hmm? So you find your own mind. You find your own opinion. You find your own choice. Hmm? Mm -hmm. How? Well, simply by going within and allowing this inner to grow. And when it grows, with it will grow your self-confidence. Your anxieties will lessen. You will become more centered. And you will begin to allow the armor to drop. Now, the supreme understanding transcends all this and that. No, because we know that knowing something in this world, knowledge, we call it, you know, is duality. Hmm? Yeah. Understanding is neither. Knowledge is partial, understanding is total. And when you look at totality, this understanding, you know, all the distinctions drop. So one is choiceless. The supreme action embraces resourcefulness without attachment. Now, so being natural doesn't mean being lazy. Being just natural, hmm? you can more easily use this activity. You can more easily use this body. Yeah. Being natural is much more creative 
you know, so one is settled within, and it is like a hollow bamboo. Action happens without attachment to it, you know, because you don't say, I have done this. It happened, the whole has done it. And the whole is neither you nor me. No. It is both and it is neither. Yeah. And the supreme accomplishment is to realize eminence without hope. Now that sounds kind of futile. But remember, with hope comes future. With hope comes desire. With hope comes the effort to improve. With hope comes greed for more. With hope comes discontent with what we are. With hope comes frustration. Hmm? To realize the eminence. Isha Upanishad says it very well. All this, all this is for the habitation by the Lord. To realize the eminence is to realize this is God's world. It's not your world and it's not my world. It's God's world. It's only what we've shuffled into it. You know. God is everywhere, in everything. God not only transcends, he is eminent. He's here. You know. So then what is there to hope for? He's here. We open our eyes and we see. And we see it is all spread out before us. God everywhere. The habitation by the Lord in the totality. Yeah. This state is called the Mahamudra, the Great Awakening. Hmm? Okay? Okay, folks. And now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I do thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.